Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Christopher Spade about his poem, Closure, which appeared in issue 25 of The Common. Chris Spade is the NEH postdoctoral fellow in poetics at the Bill and Carol Fox Center for Humanistic Inquiry at Emory University. He received his PhD from the Department of English at Harvard University and was a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows. His poems, essays, and reviews have appeared in The Nation, Plowshares, Poetry, The Sewanee Review, and elsewhere. He was a 2022-2023 writer-in-residence at the James Merrill House, and he currently reviews for the Poetry Foundation at Harriet Books. Chris Spade, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much, Emily, for having me. Would you set the scene for our conversation, just describe where you're calling from? Yeah, sure. Um, after a decade and a half or so of living in Massachusetts, part of which, uh, during part of which I went to Amherst College and got to know the common, I moved to Atlanta for a year where I have this very long title that you read perfectly and <laughs> said better than I ever have said. <laughs> um, for the year, I'm working on poetry and poetics here at Emory in Atlanta. Um, the actual scene is I have an apartment for the year, which I adore, and it's completely beige. Just every oh, wow. surface, <laughs> the rug, the rugs on the rug, um, the ceiling, it's like a, a beige bat cave. I see. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, we usually start off with a reading. Would you read Closure for us? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Um, so I'll start with the title. And the poem may be an answer to the title, <laughs> or, yeah, it's, it's elicited by the title. Closure, close your trap. Everyone you've ever lost, lost everything. Life's closed. It's not even close. At least they aren't distant. As if a stiff flick to existence flung them unfetchably far to the shadiest suburbs of substance. 
where no wintry entropy disturbs the desktop's mossy dust. Bone china smiles pearly in cupboards smugly clamming up and surely keepsakes keep an earthly ache. Hell, life's barely bearable once. Closure? How's this? They happen to they to miss. To miss with. Lost, lost abroad in each day as lungs stay braced by carbons conspiring to parch them. Lost attics of unchecked boxes, sharpied, unviable. Lost love, its terms, its conditions. Lost enviable mundanities, the rundown sundowns as January pretends to less each time. Just a means to an end, no amends or amen. Here on the losing side, what of them extends but metaphors, tricks of the dictionary, voicing, skimming a sympathetic void, should something sing closure? After a half-life as a high-functioning fiction, you've yet to face real stillness, that soundless sealant closing off the feeling. But you'll die fluent in the silent treatment, a house style of anger you never chose to be so formally taught. Why won't that decompose? Normal now as thought, their strangled language goes when you go. A losing war you've waged for years, there's no more winning now. Hold it close. It's yours. Thank you for reading that. Um, I know this question is probably a poet's nightmare, but I wonder, um, could you describe what the piece is about as much as a poem can be about a thing? <laughs> yeah, sure. It's. I'll, I'll give two answers to that. Mm-hmm. One is that maybe more than any poem I've written or most poems I've written, I remember finishing this poem and thinking, what the heck? <laughs> just happened (laughs) or who wrote this i i remember getting into it but then there are other parts that kind of baffle me in a way i find very exciting um when i was a student at amherst i had the pleasure of taking a a class with the late richard wilbur fantastic Mm. mid-century poet who we were totally spoiled on getting to have in our classrooms i don't think we like conceived that this fantastic poet who turned 90 the year he's teaching us Oh was kind gosh. of just around and had office hours and you could go, <laughs> you know, chat with them. Wow. And I remember he said, and it really surprised me, that if you go into a poem knowing how it's going to end, it's just not going to be a good poem. There's not going to be any surprise. Um, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader, as Robert Frost would say. Uh, and that really shocked me at the time because I, his, en- his endings were so good. They were like punchlines. They were so perfect. I just assumed he went in knowing how it had to end. Um, and I stubbornly wrote poems where I, I planned the ending beforehand as an undergraduate and they were no good. <laughs> so I was pretty grateful to write a poem where I just really had no clue where I was heading with it. Um, but the second answer to what the poem is about is it's about closure, um, and what it really means to find closure, whether in art with musical closings, with rhymes, with perfect endings, um, closure in yourself emotionally psychologically um, experientially and then the closure of death and um, what goes on afterwards for people who stay alive interesting um can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to start work on the poem like how that first draft came together it sounds like it was a surprise even to you yeah i i remember writing it in the month of january and that shows up in the poem um, I guess it was a time of new beginnings, but also kind of 
in Massachusetts, like wintry despair and grimness. <laughs> um, so a good time to think about endings and closure. All I had for a long time was closure, question mark, close your trap. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> uh, I know there are some writers who can start what they're writing based on a goal they want their writing to achieve or based on a kind of poem they hope they could write. But for me, I kind of just need, I need language to get going. Um, and so I started with what seemed maybe like almost something you could tweet, like closure, closure trap. <laughs> and I tried to think of what kind of voice or stance in the world would, would look at closure and reply, you know, like sassily and dismissively shut up. Um, mm. What are you What are you talking about with closure? And I think that got me into the the poem um, really incrementally. I I really just wrote it kind of one line, one sentence at a time, trying to evolve that idea of of what would it mean to kind of refuse the easiness of closure or the I don't know the simple satisfactions of feeling closure. And the first thing that came to mind was that well. I'll just read the first two lines again. Mm -hmm. Closure, close your trap. Everyone you've ever lost, lost everything. Life's closed. It's not even close. Um, when you lose someone, maybe you want to feel closure in some way. You mm -hmm. feel incomplete. You want to feel mended. You want the person back. Uh, and I think the poem starts by saying, well, if you think that's bad, if you think that your loss is pretty rough, whom, whoever you've lost, they lost just everything. Mm -hmm. um, and I really tried to think using kind of the, the words and sounds I've given, I'd given myself. So I think I got from closure and close the verb to the idea of life being closed. And then this kind of conversational thing we say when there's a huge disc discrepancy, it's not even close. <laughs> uh, what you're going through is not even close to what, the lost person went through mm -hmm. um and then yeah i kind of i think kind of just like trying to think with the vocabulary and tools i had stumbled upon um i think the rest of the poem tries to think through yeah what that really means um to want to feel closure uh or to i don't know to what it what it would mean to to get closure uh after a bereavement Mm -hmm. whether that means like thinking about what the afterlife for that person might look like um thinking about what remains here on earth on, on the losing side as the poem later describes it thinking about what poetry can do what voicing um, and song can do um and then it near the end of the poem it started to head into areas that were mysterious really even to me um i don't know if you want to skip all the way to the end already but uh, we certainly can. <laughs> yeah. Um, up until, I don't know, maybe midway through the poem, I tried to keep very general and impersonal. And again, just like playing with abstractions and generalities, closure, what that means, closeness and distance, what those mean. And then somehow in the end, I, I started to write, I guess, about personal circumstances, just very impersonally, mm -hmm. um, and to write about the silent treatment <laughs> um, and how if you've 
grown up with relationships or families where people sometimes respond to one another with silence or the silent treatment. Um, and it can get very confusing when those people aren't around anymore to talk to you, um, that their absence can kind of feel like the silent treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so without really thinking of anyone in particular in my life, um, I think the poem ends by, by thinking maybe one thing we keep with people that we lose is the way they've talked to us um, and the way we're used to hearing from them. Mm-hmm. Um, normal now as thought, their strangled language goes when you go. Um, the way you've, you've learned to communicate with those close to you, somehow that sticks around even after those people disappear. Um, that's really interesting. And maybe that's something that, that you do keep. Um, maybe that is something that's, that's closed and, and where you find closure is, yeah, and the, the ways you've taught yourself to communicate and respond to the ones you love. Hmm. The way you play with sound and language in this poem is just such a pleasure to read, and and it's even better to hear you read it. Um, I definitely, like, I spotted a few internal rhymes. I love the the rundown sundowns, but I wonder if you would just talk about what else you feel like is going on here structurally. Like, the lines sort of end in slant rhyme, but it doesn't sound rhymey even when you read it, if you know what I mean. Oh, that's good to hear, because when I read it, I just, like, Man, I should have resisted the impulse to rhyme every once in a while. I just love it so much, um, both in the poetry I've grown up and and currently love. Um, mm. In the music, I I was a music major at Amherst, oh, wow. um, and probably my first real deep experiences with with words were through song lyrics. Um, so there is a ton of rhyme. I think in this poem, maybe two things that stand out to me are, are since I was trying to turn over certain words over and over, like the word close and closure, mm-hmm. some of the rhymes that sound nice to the ear are, are actual, I don't know, they might not be, be good semantic rhymes, or I guess what I'm trying to say is, is it sounds like the poem is repeating the same sounds, mm-hmm. but it's, it's really thinking through what a word could mean. Um, like with the word lost and, and loss, um, or yeah, close later on in the poem. Uh, things like just a means to an end, no amends or amen. That's a lot of this of similar sounds, but hopefully those all, all those words kind of mean something different in the poem. And, and the poem is kind of incrementally moving through the idea of what it would mean to find amends or what it would mean to say amen after a death. The other thing that stands out, though, is is I love the closure of end rhyme, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't want the pattern of end rhyme in this poem to sound repetitive or stable at any point. I right. wanted it to, I guess, oscillate between being very rhymey and then not rhymey at all. So the the form I came up with for it is it goes in um, the first part is a couplet that rhymes and then there's one unrhymed line and then there's another couplet and then there's a triplet so three mm-hmm. lines that are rhyme uh, three lines that rhyme and that repeats so it goes like two one two three two one two three mm-hmm. um so there are moments where it, it rhymes a ton and then there should be words that that don't match up that don't find closure in the same way yeah it feels structured but not um like not overly rhythmic or like yeah too too uh, closed off like you were saying, 
Um, and I, I almost like, I see the rhymes on the page more when I look at it as opposed to like hearing them, you know, hitting me over the head when you're reading. <laughs> yeah, I think it this, I don't know if I planned it this way, but so many of the lines in jam or they, they just skip right ahead to the next mm-hmm. line. Um, so even if you're, I guess your ear or your internal ear hears the closure of rhyme, the poem just keeps going. It right. won't settle down. So, which, yeah, I love, I love that effect. It was, it's like a breathful to read it out loud. I, I just learned. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet. So it's, it sounds like. I mean, I assume the way these poems work, the way the words sort of turn on themselves, or like you were saying, like no end, no amend, no amen. Uh, like the sound of the words almost kind of leads you through the poem while you're writing that first draft. Would you, is that, is that accurate? Oh, that's definitely true with me. And certainly in this poem, you put a word down on the page and then all of a sudden you're like, Hmm, what might work well with this or what word is hidden in this? Uh, I wrote this poem before Wordle was a thing, but probably <laughs> like the part of your brain that plays Wordle or spelling bee or a crossword, that part of my mind is always kind of on fire when I'm writing a poem. I didn't mean to sound like I'm sponsored by the New York Times <laughs> department, but uh, I'll take it <laughs> if they want me to do ads for them. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, I'm really curious, are there any lines or aspects of the poems that you want to draw our listeners' attention to, like a a line you hope they linger on or that they don't miss, a, you know, a, a pairing, a, a language thing? Hmm. Um, I already said mine, which was the rundown sundowns. Yeah, that's that's a Massachusetts mood. You, <laughs> I don't know if you've had seasonal affective disorder in yes. <laughs> Uh, I guess one thing I'll, I'll mention just because it only because it might not be as apparent when you're listening to the poem mm-hmm. um, and because it maybe reveals a bit of my very nerdy scattershot process is I remember once I was looking through the dictionary um, for the word voice, which is a very important word when you're writing about poetry, whether for the first time or in a scholarly context in the mm-hmm. way I do now. And I did notice that there's this word voicing, uh, V-O-I-C-I-N-G, and the word it's right above is the word void, V-O-I-D. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was so odd, that voicing, which could be a great one-word definition of what poetry and literary art does, mm-hmm. it's just hanging out next to a word that means like complete absence. Right. Um, it, it both seemed like a perfect like yin and yang, like two opposites, um, like all of art versus nothingness. But then it also reminds me of just, I mean, a poem is such a vaporous, effervescent thing that it's not too far from a void. I mean, once the poem's over, we're back to a void. So that great find um, <laughs> that I stumbled on um, led to this sentence um, in which voicing and void are italicized. Here on the losing side, what of them, the people we lose, what of them extends but metaphors, tricks of the dictionary, 
voicing, skimming a sympathetic void, should something sing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, did, I mean, it, it, it stands out on the page, I think, a little bit because of the italicized, but yeah, it's, yeah, I'm glad you pointed our attention to it. Oh, yeah. Also, I don't know. I always feel like the parts of my, my poems and essays and anything that I like the best are the things I didn't come up with. So I'm glad the, the dictionary came up with that. One. <laughs> um, we published another of your poems back in 2018. Um, it's called The Yokes on Us. I wonder if you would read that one for us as well. Oh, yeah, I'd love to. Okay. The Yokes on Us. Um, maybe I'll just say one thing sure. before it. With closure, I had no clue where I was heading. Um, I feel like this poem I'm about to read was very different where I, I came up with an idea and I thought, let me run this idea into the ground. <laughs> <laughs> or I like this one idea. Let me see how far I can take it. Mm. And so a lot of the lines, pretty much every line in the poem uses this effect called zugma. Um, I should, I have a PhD in English. I should know how to say it. <laughs> zugma, uh, which is this figure of speech where you use one word in, in two very different ways in the same sentence. Wow. I have never um, heard that phrase before. Yeah, so it, a, like a classic example that will show up in your poetry textbooks um, is Alexander Pope in his very witty, compressed classical poems would have lines like, um, I think here, let me find a famous example. I scribbled it down somewhere. <laughs> um, in, in The Rape of the Lock, he's addressing someone named Anna, and he's talking about where she hangs out and has tea parties. Here thou, great Anna, whom three realms obey, Doth sometimes counsel take and sometimes tea. So it's the room where she takes her counsel, where she takes advice, mm-hmm. and it's also the room where she takes tea. And the word take does both work at once. Right. So it's almost um, like a turn, like within the phrase. Yeah. Yeah. Or kind of like a pun, or mm-hmm. I don't know, it's, it's you're kind of getting two for one with your verbs. Um, uh, maybe an example that's like a lot closer than Alexander Pope is if you know the Alanis Morissette song, Head Over Feet, <laughs> she has this line. <laughs> you held your breath and the door for me. Mm, yeah. So held is both like holding your breath and holding the door. Anyway, I, I wrote a poem running with this, this cool trick called Zugma, um, which comes from the Greek word for yoke. So I think that's where I got ah. um, That makes the poem sound much smarter than it is. You'll see, it's, really, it's pretty goofy. <laughs> okay. The yoke's on us. We broke the law and into smiles. We sowed dissent and daffodils. We wiped our tears in private files. We stacked the deck in dollar bills. We shot the shit, then shot the sheriffs. Exchanged vows and currencies. We raised the dead and export tariffs. Ordered troops and extra cheese. We counted calories and bodies. Played Monopoly and God. We lost our passwords and libidos. Left for dead and old Cape Cod, we practiced abstinence and cellos. Filled up hard drives and sing sing. We seized the day and 80 kilos. Saw and said and did something. We joined a gym, the June Rebellion. Marched on Washington and meth. We waxed poetic and Brazilian. Watched our back, our mouth, Macbeth. We gave him hell and syphilis till Sisyphus rolled up and down. We blew our chances and a kiss to one noun and another noun. We turned a page and into bugs. 
We cured cold cuts, the common cold. We took stock tips and party drugs. We struck preemptively and gold. We went for broke, or went broke, broke down, wore that cross, that drill, that ache, that straw-thin crack that broke our back, whose yoke could cut no break, no break. Thanks for reading that. I just love this poem. It was a big favorite among our student interns when um, when this issue came out. Oh, cool. Um, I feel like like it's playful. Like you said, it's sort of goofy, but there's also something sort of darker, serious underneath. And maybe that's just because it everything feels like a commentary on society these days. But um, I wonder, like, how would you describe it? You know, beyond what how you already have. Yeah, that's. I'll take dark. I'll take both goofy and dark. I think maybe the way I got into it was trying to come up with these funny, jarring, odd combinations where um, two phrases that pointed to very different parts of our lives Mm. could somehow be joined by the same verb. Um, Just to pick up, I don't know, very random one. We counted calories in bodies. Mm. Um, Two like vastly different parts of an everyday life but i mean both things that occur to many people is i don't know thinking about maybe unhealthily maybe healthily yourself and thinking about world tragedies um i think the idea of that i could convey both of those in a, a line that sounded very casual and normal and rhythmic that the oddity of that was really interesting to me um, but then it turns out if you do that 30 times in a poem, <laughs> um, suddenly what you have a, have is a poem um, with, on the one hand, a very unnerving, rigid rhythm um, and rhyme scheme um, that just seems like, I don't know, it keeps going and going like a metronome. And then on the other hand, you have, I don't know, a mindset or a, a mentality that just can't it can't keep its um it can't pay attention to anything just we're jumping from abstinence to cellos to mm-hmm. hard drives to, to prison um to i don't know rebellion to getting a brazilian yeah <laughs> um and inadvertently maybe i i think yeah I, I wrote a poem much darker than i expected uh, going into it um as i mentioned the this funky word zugma um comes from the word for yoke. And I think near the end of the poem, I thought like, oh, it's kind of funny how the, the poem is, it feels like it's it's pulling a yoke or it's, it feels like it's it's trapped in a certain um, path and, and way of movement. And I think that's probably what led to the, the final lines about what it's like to bear a cross or to bear a, a yoke that you can't get off of. Mm. So now I'm wondering, um, I, I mean, is it fair to say, do you feel like, all of your poetry or a lot of your poetry does the same like sort of play with language and, and, and idiom and, and one phrase leading to another phrase. Um, or are those just the poems that our poetry editor really loves of yours? <laughs> mm, I would say probably both, but I, I am reminded there's a, a line from the English and then American poet WH Auden, who he says, I'm, butchering this awfully please google it it's it's so much better when you read the real thing but he says something more or less like if you want to change the world if you want to be remembered forever as a great author 
poetry may not be the thing for you. But if you like the idea of shuffling around syllables for a few hours, then maybe you're cut out for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is true. I mean, I, I'm not as pessimistic as he is about what art can do, but the kind of thing that will get me to sit down and, and fidget with a poem for hours is, yeah, playing with words and finding something strangely game-like with words that mean the world to me. Um, and yeah, it also just may be a coincidence that um, your lovely poetry editor liked these very <laughs> playful poems. Yeah, he, he has very eclectic taste. Um, so I'm always excited to see what he picks. And, and, and I mean, you know, I guess in most issues, there aren't a lot of poems that, you know, rhyme or have like a specific structure, but sometimes he'll throw in a sonnet or, or something, you know, more formally, you know, with structure. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I remember that even from... So we emailed before and, and and I mentioned that the first issue of The Common came out when I was a senior. And I remember looking at that first issue as a student and just thinking like, whoa, all of this poetry, first of all, is like going on right now. And it somehow is showing up in Amherst, Massachusetts. Um, <laughs> then and even now, it's kind of beyond me how magazines get put together and collections get put, put, put together. And it was just so cool to see these poets I adored and whose names I immediately recognized showing up in Frost Library of Amherst College. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, we're pretty lucky that we get to do this as a job. Yeah. Um, so I'm really curious. Um, you've talked a little bit about um, being at Amherst. Uh, you graduated in the spring of 2011, which is ironically you know, when The Common put out its first issue. But I wonder if you could tell us any more about what your time at Amherst was like and you know what you studied there in terms of writing or you said music. Yeah, I studied... Um, I was a double major English and music and I didn't take a poetry class until my junior year. I was very scared of poetry (laughs) and now for a living, I mostly teach 18, 19, 20 year olds who are scared of poetry. Um, So I, I remember what that was like, but I remember loving novels. I was reading, loving any number of other genres, but never being able to finish those books. Interesting. Um, I would. I've written many good essays about the first page of a novel. Um, <laughs> what happens to those characters? I wish them the best. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so, um, a very good friend at the time um, re- recommended that I try poetry. Maybe that was something more suited to my attention span. And I, I admitted I was nervous about it. And um, she recommended I take a class with the wonderful Daniel Hall, who's um, since retired but taught poetry creative um taught creative writing workshops in poetry at amherst for years and the way my friend uh recommended the class not only was the wonderful daniel and the class but she said on the last day daniel brings in a very good cake (laughs) um and i was 20 at the time and the thought of getting a cake in three or four months was like enough to get me to (laughs) to sign up for a class and i'm so glad that that um this friend convinced me to do it because i I adored poetry. I'm so glad I got into it through writing it, which really taught me both the pleasures and difficulties of it. And then at at the end, Daniel brought in a really good cake. So I got everything I wanted and more. (laughs) And pretty much from then until now, 13 or so years later, it's just been poetry ever since. That's so interesting. I, um, we were talking before I went to Smith and, um, 
I always knew I wanted to write since I was a teenager, but when I got to Smith, I, the only writing class I took was a poetry class and I was, I'm not very good at it, (laughs) but I I, I think the idea of taking a fiction class would have been so insanely intimidating to me at that time. I feel like there is something very intimidating about claiming yourself as a writer or claiming Mm -hmm. to have something to say creatively and poetry felt much more digestible because I knew I could do some good sounds or make some nice rhymes. Sure. Yeah. And now you write fiction and, and yeah, and I wouldn't go near poetry. (laughs) Wow. Well, one day we'll turn the tables. I'll ask you, I'll interview you about how you became a novelist (laughs) from your, your poetry workshop beginning. I mean, I do. I definitely still like to, you know, to play with language and I think sound and that kind of thing. But um, I sort of th- feel about poets the way I feel about visual artists now, which is like, I feel like um, their canvas is everything. They can do anything, and that feels way too freeform for me. I like that fiction has, like, generally speaking, some kind of structure, grammatical conventions, mm. you know, that kind of thing. I like a little, a smaller playing field. I think. Whoa, that's so fascinating because I feel like the complete reverse. I'm in such awe of fiction writers. <laughs> when I read a great novel or short story, I feel like, wow, you wrote a 300-page poem and I can barely <laughs> write a one-page poem. <laughs> there are some writers I read who I feel like are poets who are just writing prose. Yeah. Ooh, okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, you uh, mean that as a compliment? Yes, oh, yes. Okay, in yeah, good way, yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. I mean, thinking of like like Maya, Maya Angelou's prose, oh. it, you okay. know, might as well be poetry. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, I misunderstood you. I thought you meant you read some some poetry and you're like, ugh, this is just prose. <laughs> oh no, no, I actually no, you... quite like prose poetry. Yeah. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I know um, you're at Emory University now, like you said, for a year. Um, can you tell us what what you're doing there? Are you teaching? Or are you doing research? Yeah. So I after. Amherst and after kicking around at a few schools for a bit I got a PhD in English um not in writing poetry but in studying it the history and theory of it teaching it I'm teaching everything from intro to poetry classes to seminars for seniors and now grad students um and yeah I'm at Emory for the year um where I am I'm studying poetry they have a fantastic library with Lucille Clifton's papers and Seamus Heaney's papers, among many other treasures. Um, and I'll also be teaching a course on global contemporary poetry. Um, I guess the real question is, will you be bringing in a cake on the last day of class? You know what? The, <laughs> the first time I taught intro to poetry, one of the promises I made to myself is that I would bring in a really good cake. Um, <laughs> at the time I was teaching at Harvard, so it was a different bakery than what was available in Western Mass. Oh, but oh, yeah. Definitely cake in all my classes. I guess that's tough. I mean, that's a lot of cakes if you're teaching quite a few classes. It's a lot of cakes. And also, you have to mind things like vegan students, gluten-free course, students. We need yeah. cake alternatives. That <laughs> says I'm willing to go that distance. And yeah, the stakes ha- have got higher on, on cakes in general, I feel. The stakes have gotten higher, and I think the quality's gotten higher. As a society, we've, yes. we've learned a lot about cake, and uh, my students get to benefit from it. Yes, I would agree with that. Um, so just one last question we ask everyone. Uh, what are you working on now? What's what's next? Um, what am I working on right now? Well, I am always reviewing new books. Um, I'm reviewing 
currently for the Poetry Foundation, so I have some upcoming books to work on for them. Um, in my own work, I've been thinking a lot about Asian American poetry, so I have an essay on, on what it means to speak for an Asian American collective or to kind of do ventriloquism for multiracial and, and white collectives. What I really have to do as soon as this ends is um, we're recording this podcast in my lovely quiet neighborhood in Atlanta where I have a fridge that's incredibly loud and makes uh, like a death metal rattle <laughs> when it's turning on. So I unplugged it for the podcast. So oh, I have okay. many notes around that tell me to plug back in my fridge. So that's the work I have to do next. That's perfect. So the next thing you're working on is plugging the fridge back in. <laughs> I know. I've never... Do you, did you ever have this prank call when you were a kid where people would ask, is your refrigerator running? <laughs> I have heard of that, yes. You say yes, and it, they say, then you should go catch it. Well, for once, my refrigerator is not running, and it's a it's a problem. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, Chris Fade, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really great to talk with you and, and hear about these poems from, from your perspective. Uh, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Emily. Listeners, you can read Chris's poems and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.